endless depictions of spies in pop culture. There are not, however, many examples of the reality behind modern espionage, a world that's changing faster than most people realize. Rapid advances in technology combined with ever-changing geopolitical dynamics have created an intelligence world that looks quite different than what is portrayed. This crisis in intelligence education is distorting public opinion, fueling conspiracy theories, and hurting policy. So what does espionage look like in the digital age? Good evening and welcome. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Tonight, we are thrilled to welcome one of America's leading intelligence experts, Dr. Amy Ziegert, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute for Inst International Studies at Stan Stanford University and a contributing writer to The Atlantic. Her book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence, draws on decades of research and hundreds of interviews to provide a clear view of the modern intelligence landscape and where it's heading. You can order copies of Amy's book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms through our bookstore partner, Interabing Books. And you can visit their website at interabingbooks.com to support our fabulous local bookstore partner. And also, if you're not a member of the World Affairs Council yet, please join us. I want to meet you. I want to see you at our events. We want to engage with you. And uh, you can go to our website at dfwworld.org to see more about membership. So the council is committed to providing a safe environment within our capacity uh, for our community members, including vaccination and mask requirements at our in-person events. We are hoping to continue moving back in person. We continue to monitor uh, frequently, regularly, every day, the situation, but we wanna be in person. And we know that you also want to be with us in person. So you can look at all of our health and safety practices on our website at dfwworld.org. So our moderated, moderator this evening is a good friend of the council, Jess Collini. Jess is, Jessica is the senior program manager for F-16 Block 72 programs at Lockheed Martin Aeronautics, where she leads all activity related to platform development and delivery, working closely with multiple US government stakeholders. Just joined Lockheed Martin in 2014 and has worked across the Middle East and North Africa to promote high priority campaigns and production activities. In 2013, Jess earned her master's with honors in international affairs from the George Bush School at Texas A&M University. While there, she focused on national security and uh, including an Arabic immersion program in Muscat, Oman and served as a graduate researcher. And perhaps most impressive of all, uh, and actually I'm gonna let her share this piece. So Jess, it's uh, really wonderful to have you on board this evening to guide our conversation. Thank you for joining us and I'm gonna let you take it away from here. Ladies, thank you again. I'm excited for this. Thank you, Liz. And, and thank you, Dr. Ziegert. 
I wanted to, to take a quick moment to also recognize the, the World Affairs Council staff, especially um, Kirsten and all that they do to make events like tonight's possible. I, I know this type of connection throughout the pandemic has been really invaluable for so many of us. So thank you very much. And as Liz said, I, I was really excited to share a, a personal connection that I have with the World Affairs Council um, and with tonight's topic. So as, as Liz teed up for us, um, I actually started my entire career interning for the World Affairs Council. A, a mentor introduced me to the organization and we'll come back to that person in just a minute. And from there, I, I went on from an internship to a, a role in programs where I, I worked at the World Affairs Council for about six and a half years. And um, simply put, I wouldn't be who I am or where I am without the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. But my dearest friends, you've heard me mention a, a number of mentors, all of whom have, have helped me. The Arabic immersion that Liz mentioned was only possible due to a mentor I met at the council. Um, the job I have now at Lockheed, only possible from a mentor I met at the council. And so I, I just can't recommend it highly enough. My dearest friends and husband were also benefits of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. So if you have a student in your life or if you're a student on the line, I, I can't recommend a summer internship enough for you. Um, like Liz said, I, I also can't recommend some of the programming enough that she teed up, including membership. So if you have questions about membership, I know that the council staff is, is so happy to help you, but I'm also happy to tell you about my experience as a member now in my, my professional career. Um, and as my um, corporation has been involved with the World Affairs Council for a number of years, I'm very happy to tell you about corporate sponsorship opportunities and the benefit that my company has seen over many years. So transitioning back to the, the topic of hand tonight, I, I wanted to go back to the first mentor that introduced me to the World Affairs Council. It's actually a, a mutual friend of, of both Amy's and mine, um, Jim Olson, a professor of practice and in intelligence at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M is how I first found out about the World Affairs Council. And um, our members know him very well as a, an author and, and frequent lecturer for the council he retired from the CIA as the chief of counterintelligence after a very dynamic career with his wife Meredith, serving in some of the hottest spots of the Cold War, and is, is now, as I mentioned, at Texas A&M. So, so Amy, I wanted to start with that note just because I wanted our, our listeners and, and members to know that he's actually using your book, which we're very excited to hear more about tonight, in his classes this fall. So he couldn't join us tonight. He sends his regards, and um, we'll be using this to teach members of, of his class who are, are meant to be future public servants in the intelligence community. So full circle, full circle opportunity for you here. Um, he could not endorse your work enough. He uses it in a number of his classes. And that's one of many endorsements that, that Amy's book has gotten over the last several weeks. It was just released on February 1st. H.R. McMaster, John McLaughlin, and another individual who our council membership knows, Ambassador Mike McFall, who um, has spoken, former ambassador of the U.S. to Russia, and just had glowing things to say about the book. So let's talk more about Dr. Ziegert, or she likes to be known, Amy. Um, as Liz and, and Kirsten have teed up for us tonight, she's really one of the, the leading experts on intelligence affairs, specializing in emerging technologies, grand strategy, and political risk management. She's also been recognized as one of the 10 most influential experts in intelligence from the National Journal. She's currently um, the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. She's a Senior Fellow there at the Freeman Spogli Institute where she has her colleague Ambassador Mike McFall and, and many others. 
and is also a contributing writer of The Atlantic. Most recently, she served as a commissioner on the 2020 CSIS Technology and Intelligence Task Force, and she's advised a number of national security professionals and policymakers on intelligence, specifically congressional oversight of intelligence affairs, which we'll talk about a bit tonight. She's also served both sides of the political spectrum, having served the Clinton National Security Council and the Bush 2000 presidential campaign as a foreign policy advisor. In addition to her five books that she has authored, she's also well published throughout foreign affairs, international security, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. So we really could not have a better person to talk to us about the, the future of American intelligence with spies, lies, and algorithms. Um, and I have to say her Twitter feed is extremely engaging and um, witty also. So after you buy her book at Interra Bang Books, please be sure to follow and, and continue to engage with her on Twitter. Um, Amy and I are both extremely excited about the number of students on the line. And so we really wanna hear from you. We wanna take the first question from the audience from a student. So we'll be keeping a, a close eye out for those tonight. So without further ado, Amy, I, I wanted to just thank you again for being with us and start with a, a general question for you just to tee up the general framework of the book. Um, why now? Why was it so important for this type of work to be published now? And, and what are you hoping that the broader American public gains from this topic and this knowledge now? Well, first, let me just say thank you, Jess. Uh, and thank you, Liz. And thank you, Kirsten. I feel like with that kind of introduction, I just want to stop the event right here. That was such a lovely welcome to the World Affairs Council. And I'm so excited to be with all of you via Zoom. And I hope for the students in the audience, ask your questions. So as I told Jess before we started the Zoom, I test drove ideas for this book in COVID um, with my own daughter's high school class. So if you're a high school student, don't be afraid because if my daughter could let her embarrassing mother guest lecture in her foreign policy class, you can ask a question on Zoom. But let me get to your, your just terrific question, Jess. Why now? And I think really there are two reasons why now. The first is that intelligence requires civics education. That what I found in teaching about intelligence years ago was that most of my students didn't know anything about intelligence and what they did know they learned from spy themed entertainment. And I like spy themed entertainment as much as the next person, but it's fueled a lot of myths about intelligence. The myth that the National Security Agency is listening to your phone calls with your grandmother. The myth that spies are running rogue without oversight. The myth that torture works because it always does in TV. And so I did national polls and I found statistically significant results, public opinion being influenced by spy-themed entertainment and policy being influenced by spy-themed entertainment too. I found incredible examples of members of Congress asking CIA director nominee Leon Panetta about fictional plot lines from television shows as though they were real. You can't make this stuff up. So the first part is, I think civics education is so important. Members of Congress can't oversee intelligence agencies if voters don't care. And voters won't care if they don't understand how these agencies operate. But there's a second reason, and the book, you know, there's a reason it has algorithms in the title. And that is that new technologies like AI are transforming how intelligence operates. So just as you think about how technologies like the internet are enabling us to communicate now, new technologies are changing how we collect intelligence, how we analyze intelligence, 
Who needs intelligence, right? Policymakers who don't have security clearances need intelligence, like voters, about foreign election interference. So whether we know it or not, intelligence affects all of us in our daily lives much more than it did even a few years ago. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I, I um, am just amazed by the influence that I think you you called it spytainment in your um, in your book has on all of us in our perception of the the intelligence community or the IC. Um, I'm, I wanted to to tee up another question for you, um, and this is a, a I hope a good entree for our students on the line to to hopefully ask a question here soon. But for those students on the line, what first drew your interest or attention to intelligence affairs. You've got a, a really hysterical tweet and I think a comment in the book too about how there's more experts in powdered milk <laughs> than there are in intelligence reform and intelligence affairs. And so I'd, I'd love for you to just talk about how you how you first went down the road of intelligence, but also specifically what, what you've delved into in this latest book. So I think like most high school kids, I grew up just sort of interested in spies and probably from spy themed entertainment, but I actually got interested in intelligence completely by accident. So I was a graduate student at Stanford uh, writing my PhD and I decided after working on the National Security Council that I wanted to write about the NSC staff and I wanted to write about its evolution and how it got information to the president. I came back to Stanford and I told my doctoral advisor, who was a woman named Condi Rice before she became national security advisor. She was my PhD advisor. And I said, I have this great idea for a dissertation. I'm gonna write about the National Security Council. And she said, that's a terrible topic for a PhD dissertation. She said it a little more diplomatically than that. But she said, you know, you really need to compare lots of agencies to try to explain why some develop in some ways and some develop differently. And ideally you should compare agencies created at the same time, because then you can isolate what are the causes that are leading to these different trajectories over time. So I went to the library and spent, I don't even know how long in the basement of the library. And I came across this law, which I'm sure you know well, the National Security Act of 1947. And that piece of legislation gave rise to most of the big organizations of our national security state today, including this little debated, little known agency in the 1940s called the Central Intelligence Agency. So I ended up writing about the CIA as part of my PhD. And once I started looking at the CIA, I was hooked for life. And I've never written another thing about the National Security Council. And this is now my third book about US intelligence agencies. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. Thank you for that. Yeah, that the 1947 Act is um, obviously the framework that we've been working with for so long, and that's actually a great a great pivot to this next question I have for you about today's challenges. Um, as I get into that question, I wanted to, to invite the audience again. If you have any questions or, or comments for the discussion, please feel free to share them and, and we'll work them in, especially those students out there. So 
you know, transition from 1947 to today, there are, are obviously, as you mentioned, so many new challenges and, and threats. Um, you know, you have mentioned in, in other articles and in this book and some of your other books about the challenge we faced pre 9-11 and connecting the dots. And we had information, but just couldn't, couldn't connect the dots in a timely enough manner. Now you talk about the breadth of information that we have from so many different sources, open sources, um, artificial intelligence. There's, there's a breadth of information that we have even more dots to connect. And um, you frame this in a really, really great, I think, digestible framework of the five mores. Could you tell us about the five mores? Sure. So I've been thinking about this for a long time. It's, it's, it's very difficult to wrap your arms around how technology is challenging intelligence. And so I came up with the five mores to, as a way to, to organize, right, how we should think about these challenges. So think about for what first, what technologies am I talking about, right? It's internet connectivity. More people have cell phones than running water in the world. It's artificial intelligence commercial satellites, think of Google Earth and what you can access online. So a whole bunch of technologies converging at the same moment, which we've never had before. So for intelligence, the five mores that this convergence creates. Number one, more threats. More threats that can threaten us across vast distances like cyberspace. So until the cyber era, geography protected the United States and power protected the United States. But those two key features no longer protect us. We're the most powerful actor in cyberspace, and we're simultaneously the most vulnerable actor in cyberspace because we're so digitally connected. And good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods are all connected in cyberspace. So more threats, right? Not just traditional state threats, but now non-state actors all working through cyberspace. The second more, more speed. Intelligence has to serve policymakers and they have to get intelligence at the speed of relevance. And increasingly in a Twitter era, that's accelerating. So it's not the cold war where you could provide intelligence at the speed of bureaucracies. You have to provide it at the speed of networks. That's really different today too. So more threats, more speed. The third more, more data. We are drowning in data. By some estimates, the amount of data on Earth is doubling every two years. So think about if you're an intelligence analyst and you're trying to make sense of what is Xi Jinping's aspirations for China in the South China Sea or Taiwan, think about the overload of data that now you have to confront, more data. The fourth more, more people who need intelligence. I alluded to this in answer to your first question, Jess. It's not just people with security clearances in locked rooms that need intelligence now. Tech leaders need intelligence about cyber threats to and through their networks. Critical infrastructure leaders, people in financial services or in power or in water, they need intelligence too to keep their networks safe. That's very different for these agencies that are used to living entirely in a classified world to provide intelligence for the open, right? That's a radical shift. So more people who need intelligence. And then there's the fifth more, which is more intelligence competitors. So today, anybody with a cell phone or an internet connection can collect intelligence, can analyze intelligence, can produce intelligence. The most recent example of this, if students wanna Google it and look it up, is in the summer, the discovery of hundreds of Chinese nuclear missile silos. 
So that public reporting made headlines in the Washington Post, for example, that did not come from intelligence agencies. That came from independent researchers using open source or publicly available information, including satellite imagery from commercial satellites. And it was all done without security clearances. This incredible discovery, really important geopolitical implications all through the open source world. So even when in nuclear threats, which are among the most secretive and difficult to track of threats for intelligence agencies, non-governmental organizations and individuals can actually get into the intelligence business. And so our government is losing its relative edge in terms of being able to dominate that intelligence space. I have so many threads I want to pull from that last, from that last comment. Um, and I'll say in the book, you've got a I think a really witty term for the, the phenomenon you just talked about, the citizen nuclear sleuth, which um, a blessing and a curse, as you've just outlined. We do have some, some audience questions that I wanted to shift to for just a moment, Amy. Um, we've got one from a, a longtime member and um, retired public servant, Ray Termini, and he, he touches on Russia. We're going to touch on Russia, I think, probably a couple times tonight. He says, it is often said that the U.S. is losing the cyber war and is on the defensive. The, they point to Russia's interference in the 2016 election, which you write about quite a bit in your book. Are we only on the defensive? Hasn't the U.S., along with Israel, been involved in delaying the Iranian nuclear program? So the short answer is no, we're not only on the defensive. So as the question suggests, in fact, it was public, I have to be careful, publicly reported that the U.S. and Israel were jointly behind the Stuxnet operation, the malware that destroyed uh, Iran's many, hundreds of Iran's nuclear centrifuges. Um, and that was a very sophisticated offensive cyber operation. And former NSA director Michael Hayden wrote about that moment. It had the whiff of 1945 about it. And by that he meant the atom bomb, that Stuxnet was equivalent to a new type of weapon and a new era of warfare akin to the atom bomb in 1945. So that was a really big moment for cyber warfare. And that offensive cyber operation was started, according to public reports, by us with the Israelis. Now that said, after that, we really were in a defensive crouch for many years, that we were you know, cybermen defending our networks from, from adversaries. But in the past few years, US Cyber Command has decided to have a different strategy and it's literally called defend forward, which means taking the cyber fight to adversary networks to cause them friction and difficulty before they penetrate our systems. So it's a more forward leaning stance. It's a little bit more on the offensive cyber operations side of things. So we're getting more into that realm of cyber operations, less exclusively in the defensive crouch. Thank you. And Ray, thank you so much for that question. We have a few more that are coming in and then we'll, we'll pivot back to some of the other questions that we have on, on deck for you. Um, this one is from Rachel Vogel, who has just left the council. She has served as um, vice president of programs and actually took over for me when I, I left the organization to go to graduate school. So Rachel has a great question for us. It's how do intelligence agencies use open source data like this? Do they now have dedicated units to look into open source data or work with companies that source it? I love this question, Rachel. And, and you've got a lot of content in the book, Amy, about open source intelligence, how agencies are structuring to, to manage that and, and maybe how they should. 
So I would love to hear an answer to Rachel's question. I'd also love to hear a recommendation from you in terms of what they should be doing. Yeah, that's a great question, Rachel. Um, the, the sort of short answer is different parts of the intelligence community have open source initiatives. Typically 80% of an intelligence product comes from open sources. So this isn't entirely a new thing, but here's the challenge. Secret agencies will always favor secrets. It's in their DNA, it's what they focus on. And for those of you steeped in history, you'll remember that the Air Force didn't become its separate service until after World War II. And there's a reason, right? Air power didn't get the resources or attention it deserved when it was within the army. Same thing with open source intelligence and secret agencies. So yes, there's the use of open source intelligence, but as one intelligence officer told me, you know, we think inside the community, if a piece of information costs a trillion dollars to get, it must be worth a trillion dollars, right? And that's not true today. Free information, open source information is really the name of the game. So the second part of, I think, your add-on to Rachel's question is, what do we do about it? I think we need a dedicated open source intelligence agency. Otherwise, we're never going to harness the tools and the capabilities enough to gain that kind of decision advantage through open source intelligence. Thank you. And, and Rachel, thank you for letting me tap on to, to your great question. We have a few more queued up here, Amy, that I, I want to hit before we go back to um, our, our other questions. So I, I couldn't see exactly who this came from. So feel free if you'd like to send me a chat to identify yourself, just let us know. Um, it's a two-part question. Has the government had a difficult time hiring cyber experts because the private sector pays so much? And I, I'm actually going to add on to that also. Um, is it a, a matter of demand or is it a matter of the ability to clear individuals to work in some of these cyber security type of positions that we need? And I'll, I'll pause on the second part of the question. So it's all of the above. Yes, mm -hmm. the government's having a hard time. We don't produce nearly enough computer scientists in this country. There's a million job shortage already. The private sector offers not just more money, but more ability to innovate. And that's a challenge too. You know, one of the things I've been doing a lot is working with the Defense Department since I sit here at Stanford and most of our majors are engineers to try to help them, uh, you know, work better with Silicon Valley and recruit more engineers. And the Pentagon comes out in particular and they like to use D words, destroy, defeat, degrade. And in Silicon Valley, engineers like to use C words, create, collaborate, change. And so there's sort of a messaging challenge with recruiting people, uh, a cultural challenge with recruiting people. I don't think it's insurmountable. I think our government can get really talented young engineers in the door more than they can, but they've got to think about their messaging and they have to be more proactive and more flexible about bringing them in and out of government and the private sector rather than thinking of it as a lifetime career. I love that point. So, um... We've got one more question. We had a, a question from Cameron O'Bannon, who is, is taking us back to your framework of the five mores. He wants to know more about the increasing speed of threats and the rate of change. He asks, do you think that traditionally slow moving institutions like Congress are capable of adapting to the rapidly changing threat landscape? And I know you've spent a lot of time looking at how Congress manages intelligence. I'm, I'm very interested to hear your answer here. I'm really worried about Congress. So the 9-11 Commission, you might recall, said that Congress was, congressional oversight of intelligence was dysfunctional. 
Congress remains the least reformed part of our intelligence enterprise since 9-11. And now you layer on the technology challenge, right? So I mentioned there are more powdered milk experts in Congress than former intelligence officers. Well, there are only something like three dozen engineers in all of Congress and more than 200 lawyers. Now, in the nuclear age, that didn't matter as much. You didn't know how to, you didn't have to know how to make a nuclear bomb to understand the nuclear threat. But with all of these technologies, whether it's encryption or quantum computing or synthetic biology, you actually do need to know more about the technology to ask the right questions, to understand what our government needs to do. And Congress doesn't have the expertise to do that. And voters don't reward members of Congress for spending the time to develop that in-house expertise, right? They reward them based on sending pork back to the district, not how much they learn about technology and intelligence oversight. Can't even talk about intelligence oversight in the district back home. So the incentives are not well aligned and we need to do more, we in universities too, to educate members of Congress about technological challenges. And in fact, we're starting a program to do just that at Stanford this year. Thank you for that. And Cameron, thank you for that great question. I wanted to, to ask a little bit more about um, a phrase that you use in the book and have used quite a bit recently, the, the deception revolution. So we've we've heard a lot about deep fakes um, in the, the 2016 and 2020 presidential election. We saw the emergence of these types of deep fakes. And you talk about the threat that those, those types of technologies pose to the average American citizen, but also to American policymakers and, and military officials. Um, we talked a little bit about the new strategy that it seems that the US government may be rolling out and acknowledging Russia's emerging tactic or, or their tactic that we had discovered was to be employed in Ukraine using what's known as a, a false flag type of operation. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the deception revolution in general. I'd also love to understand a little bit more about what you think that evolution in US strategy signals about where our government could be going with these types of threats. Oh, such a good question. So, you know, historically deception, deception's always been a part of warfare. It's always been a part of statecraft, but it used to be elites deceiving elites. So about where troops were moving, whether an attack was going to happen. So our D-Day invasion at landing at Normandy relied on deception, right? This incredible deception operation to convince Hitler that we were landing in a different part of France than, France than we actually were. Same thing with the Revolutionary War. George Washington was incredible at deception operations. But what's happened is technology has turned deception into a tool for mass propaganda and information warfare. And you see this with Russia in 2016, manipulating what Americans believed by using these social media accounts on Facebook. And we're seeing this now play out in Russia and Ukraine. So these active measures or false flag operations designed to give a pretext for an invasion, all designed not just to deceive elites, but to deceive us all, right? And this, in, in today's technological world, Nefarious actors can reach deep inside, particularly democratic societies, and polarize us and influence us and deceive us from the comfort of their own laptops. So it's a really different world in terms of both speed.
and, and our allies too, really intelligence about what Putin and his intelligence services are up to. The fake videos of genocide with actors and corpses. I mean, it's incredible the extent to which they're fomenting the, this completely fictional account as a pretext for invasion. As you know, Jess, you know, it takes a lot for intelligence agencies to release that kind of information because they fear losing access to those collection streams if they do. So I think this is a new strategy by the Biden administration of forewarning, right? Revealing before something happens that this deception operation is in the works so that you're inoculated if the Russians actually try to do it. I haven't seen the US government do this in the modern era before. And I think at least the early indicators are Putin was pretty rattled, right? And he sort of stepped back and we're hearing more about a little bit more room for diplomacy. So watch how this plays out in real time. I think we're gonna learn a lot about whether this strategy is a, a successful model for the future or not. And it seems we weren't the only ones that had this on our mind. We also had a question from um, Mary V on the line. So Mary, thank you for your question there. Um, she also acknowledged that other Western nations above and beyond the U.S. seemed to follow suit. I think I think we were the first to say that that this was happening, but other Western nations quickly quickly piled on. So Mary, thank you for your question. We have another question from Kirsten, our our program director extraordinaire. Um, she said a great point that data is democratizing, but also leaves individuals vulnerable. And with the value of, of data, how can individuals protect themselves from emerging virtual threats concerning their data? Um, she said she was also just thinking about the early fear behind using apps like TikTok because of, of Chinese government influence. And that seems to have been completely disregarded now. I mean, the amount of TikTok videos I know my family engages with, colleagues engage with, um, you know, clearly people, the American public has, have gotten over that threat. But um, I'd love to hear your response to Kristen's great, great question here. I, I just love that she's doing everything. She's making this program possible and asking questions. So thank you for that. You know, data is now incredibly valuable. It's probably the most valuable asset that there is in the world. And it's, you know, there's the old saying data is the new oil, but I don't think that's quite right. Data is valuable because it's plentiful. The more of it you have, the more insight you can get. Oil is valuable because it's scarce, right? And data um, is, is not geographically constrained. So our data is valuable in ways we don't even understand. So China, for example, has engaged in massive cyber espionage, hacking the Office of Personnel Management, stealing classification records of 22 million Americans, but they've also hacked Anthem Insurance and Marriott Hotels. Why are they doing that? Because when you meld all that data together, people's health records, where they travel, who works with what level clearance in the government, you can, you can learn a lot more about could someone be compromised? How do American intelligence officers travel if they're undercover, for example? So you get a lot more by collecting these haystacks of data than we realize. So our data is incredibly valuable, um, whether we realize it or not, especially in the aggregate. How can you protect it? It's pretty hard, but some basic things go a long way. Passwords, have good passwords that aren't password or one, two, three. Um, and use two-factor authentication. 
So really basic things can go a long way. Something like 75% of all cyber breaches result from poor cyber hygiene. Now that's not gonna stop Russian intelligence services from accessing your data if they want to, but it is gonna stop a lot of these other cyber attacks that can render your data really vulnerable for other uses later on. Thank you for that question, Kirsten. I do agree. She, she wears every hat you can wear with programs like this. Um, I wanted to just invite the audience to, to continue to submit questions. And, and while we wait for more questions to come in, I wanted to focus on um, what might be a, a slightly more optimistic note in your book, which I, I really appreciate given the challenges that I know we face. You talk quite a bit about the fact that um, while we have a relatively short history from an intelligence perspective compared to, to other nations, we still have a lot of advantages and, and the, the leading edge in a lot of areas. While it seems like you know, we, we are, as Ray said, so often on the, the defensive, we still have a lot of advantages in the American intelligence community and just with our influence writ large. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I'm so glad you're pushing me to be optimistic because it, we can go to dark corners of the room pretty quickly, but there really are reasons to be optimistic about the future of American intelligence and American national security. Number one, our values, right? Our freedom, the allure of the American model compared to the authoritarian regimes in Beijing or in Moscow. That's an enduring advantage of the United States. It's an advantage in intelligence because people will betray their home country for what they believe in in our country, right? One of the greatest intelligence assets in the Cold War was a guy codenamed Top Hat from the Soviet Union. And Top Hat gave us incredible information, including about the Sino-Soviet split, for example. Why did he do it? He never asked for a penny. He did it because he believed in America. He believed in our values and he believed the Soviet Union had betrayed those values in his own country. So that's a huge advantage for us. Our innovation ecosystem is a second huge advantage for us, right? And that comes a lot from our freedom of discourse, our freedom of invention, our higher education system. That's an enduring advantage. It's a reason why so many foreign students want to study in the United States. And then third is our multicultural society, right? When you think from an intelligence perspective, Americans, you can't tell who looks like an American because we come from everywhere and we speak every language and we know foreign cultures because almost all of us are immigrants from somewhere else at some point. That's a huge advantage too, because we can send people to foreign countries to recruit intelligence assets and to collect information. And we understand foreign cultures and it's harder for others, for adversaries to detect who we are. So that multicultural history, that fabric of our society is actually a great intelligence advantage in a whole host of ways. Thank you for that. It is, it is important we continue to see the silver lining here with, with all of the challenges we have ahead of us. Um, you know, on that note, you talked, you talked a little bit earlier about the lack of incentive for American policymakers and elected officials to really maybe focus or, or oversee intelligence like we should. What's an area that you'd like to see American policies more engaged in from an oversight perspective in the near term? In the near term, I'd say more oversight about our data privacy. So right now, Google knows a lot more about everything in my life than the National Security Agency does. Uh, and now Google doesn't have the power of the state behind it, but that's a vulnerability for all of us. 
And so we've heard a lot of talk in Congress about regulating big tech. I'm not advocating regulating or breaking up big tech because I think there's some advantages to scale, but we need to have guardrails about who can use our data and for what purpose and how can we actually give informed consent about how our data is being used? Because you know, you sign those consent forms online for your various apps and they take forever to read and no one knows what you've signed away when you sign up for Uber or whatever app that you're signing up for. So that is really an area that is crying out for sensible regulation so that we have better data privacy protection. Thank you for that. I, I do have a question for you about artificial intelligence and um, you know, with the, the speed of that technological development, how does America stay, stay on par with adversaries like Russia and China who really don't seem to have the same ethical values or, um, or concerns from a human rights or just general oversight perspective? You mentioned that our values are one of the advantages that we have in this space. I've heard some people say that, that it makes us maybe fight with one, one arm tied behind our back because we're not leaning in as much from an artificial intelligence perspective. Could you talk a little bit more about how we balance the, the need to stay ahead of our adversaries with the, the ethical dilemma that we face? I think this is an age old dilemma, which is, you know, how far are we going to go to adopt the tactics of our adversaries? And with AI, I actually think in some ways we're disadvantaged and in some ways we're advantaged. So, um, for example, facial recognition algorithms. China corners the market, right, when it comes to developing facial recognition algorithms. But China is a pretty homogeneous society. And so if all the data they're using as the, as the training data for those algorithms is predominantly developed in China, it's actually not gonna be a very good algorithm for facial recognition outside of China. So we have to be creative about um, how to limit that advantage that the Chinese may have because they're an authoritarian state. But I do think there are opportunities for mutual cooperation with AI that where, and this is one of the lessons I think from the Cold War, how do we end up having nuclear arms reduction and nuclear security um, in the Cold War? Because we all feared blowing up the world. I think AI actually, in some ways, paradoxically, creates that opportunity as well. Because other countries don't have the human in the loop that we do, because they don't have those ethical standards, the risk of miscalculation in a crisis is higher. And all sides have mutual incentives to mitigate those risks so we don't have a crisis spiral out of control. And it's that sort of fear of escalation, that fear of disaster, that might be the opportunity to bring countries with very different value systems to the table to impose some limits or some guardrails about the use of AI, particularly when it comes to crisis decision-making. That's my silver lining on the AI dark cloud. You know, I love a silver lining. Thank you for that. <laughs> you, don't hear, you don't hear a lot of that with, with AI conversations. Um, while you were providing that great response, we had a, a couple of additional questions come in. Um, one is from a, a dear member of the World Affairs Council, Marvin Noble. And he's wondering how many different agencies do we have gathering, as he puts in quotes, intelligence, and how much do they talk with each other? Who collates this for our government to act? Oh, Marvin, I've been asking that question for years. <laughs> so the, the first part of the question is a straightforward answer. There are currently 18 different agencies in the federal government alone that constitute our intelligence community. 
Now that number has been going up over time. So before 9-11, there were about a dozen. And whenever there's an intelligence crisis or failure, the natural impulse is to create yet another intelligence agency, which gets to the second part of the question, which is who coordinates or collates everything? And the answer is it's supposed to be the director of national intelligence, but that's a pretty tough job. The DNI, which was created after 9-11, like the CIA before it, has always struggled with that coordination function. And there are a couple of reasons why it's always struggled. Number one, uh, it doesn't have power over the budgets over agencies outside its own. It has very limited power over the budget. So 80% roughly of the intelligence budget goes to intelligence agencies inside the Department of Defense. They're the 800 pound gorilla, really hard to coordinate when you've got such a dominant presence inside the Department of Defense. And then the second key lever is power over people. Can you move people from one agency to another? Can you force them or coerce them or encourage them to collaborate more? And the DNI has relatively limited legal authorities for that too. So that's like, you know, you have responsibility, but not authority. They're not well aligned. And that's because that legislation was hobbled deliberately uh, when it was put to Congress because existing intelligence agencies don't want to give up their autonomy. They don't want to give up their budgets. They don't want to give up their people for some good reasons and some bureaucratic turf reasons that aren't so good. But this dynamic's been playing out for more than half a century. Thank you for that question, Marvin. That's great. And, and Amy, thank you for the response. We have a, another question from Mary Vogtel, who um, has had a, a couple of really great points and questions tonight. She's wondering about your thoughts more generally speaking, I think from a, a foreign policy and an intelligence perspective about the Russian plot to take over Ukraine. Well, I am not a Russia expert. So I would, I would, you know, I hope you'll get my my friend and colleague, Mike McFall, former ambassador to Russia, back on uh, in, in a program. So I'll give you my my best guess as not a Russia expert. I always hasten to add where I am and am not an expert. But I think what we're seeing with Vladimir Putin is a pretty typical move from him. What are his aims in Ukraine? It could be that his aims in Ukraine are really to take over Ukraine, but I think his primary aim is to split the Western alliance. What he wants to do is divide NATO. And in fact, his, you know, his early moves against Ukraine did do that. So you think about 2014 after the Sochi Olympics when he took over Crimea, there, there really was not a well-considered, I think, unified forceful response to that. But in this case, it looks like Putin's strategy is backfiring. You see a coming together of the NATO alliance and even the Germans, a little slow to come to the table, even the Germans are now standing in stronger support of, a, of our position on Ukraine. So I think first and foremost, Putin wants to be a spoiler. He wants to divide the West. He wants to put us on our back foot. I don't think he's particularly strategic, but I will say I think he's very risk seeking. He has a very high risk tolerance. He's willing to take much greater risks than I think any other leader in the world. Um, so if you compare that to say Xi Jinping in China, China's very aggressive threat, very challenging adversary for the United States. But Xi Jinping doesn't have that kind of risk appetite that Vladimir Putin does. He's not ordering assassinations of people in foreign lands, right? Which is he's ordered the poisoning of uh, former spies that, that uh, you know, spied uh, for the UK uh, and against Russia. 
that's a that's a quite that's crossing a red line in spycraft uh, to do that. So I think Putin is a unique threat because he's willing to take so many dangerous risks. And when you have a leader that can that is willing to do that, the danger is miscalculation. And we know that wars have almost always happened because one or both sides miscalculate. For not being a, a self-proclaimed Russia expert, that was a really, really great answer. Thank you for that. That that really has gotten me thinking. And I, I think it's gotten some of our, our members wondering um, some additional questions as well. So we've got um, one from Kirsten again, who is um, just spot on with these questions. She says, because technological advances have created a society where things like deep fakes are possible, there's growing widespread belief that our own intelligence services must be lying to the American public to advance their own agendas. How do intelligence officials combat this and carry on protecting our country in the face of this deep public mistrust? You talk about this mistrust a little bit in the book too, and one of the questions that we didn't get to earlier brought up Edward Snowden and the lack of faith and confidence that the broader American public had in our intelligence community as a result of a breach like that. So going back to, to Kirsten's question, you know, how, how do we reinstill that faith in the intelligence community? So I think you, know, it's, you have to have solutions that attack the cause of the problem. So what's causing this deep distrust is sort of the first question I would ask. I don't know that I have the answer, but I have some speculation about where it comes from. I think part of it is spy-themed entertainment, for sure. Part of it is Edward Snowden really revealing classified programs that shocked a lot of people, including tech companies in Silicon Valley. They thought the government was going in the front door, and in fact, they were also going in the back door, and that was a surprise, caused a trust deficit. And then there's the Trump administration, I think a third major cause of really um, criticizing and politicizing intelligence. And that's very damaging for our intelligence agencies. As you might remember, President Trump uh, called intelligence officials Nazis. He said he believed Vladimir Putin more than his own intelligence agencies. He treated intelligence like the marketing department of a corporation, right? To sell information, whether it was true or not, both to the domestic audience and the foreign audience. And he fired his director of national intelligence after he spoke the truth in a congressional hearing about how the intelligence community saw threats in North Korea and other parts of the world playing out. He fired Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats for doing his job, which is speaking truth to power. How do we fix it? Well, spy-themed entertainment, we can't do a lot about, but we can educate people more about the facts, right? Um, you know, with, the, with President Trump, I think what you see now is a rebuilding of trust uh, from uh, just getting back to that professional ethos of the intelligence community. And time is healing the wounds of Edward Snowden. And I think the China threat is actually helping to rebuild that collaborative relationship, that better trusted relationship between the private sector in Silicon Valley and the government. So time sometimes heals the wounds, but we have to work very hard to make sure that our intelligence agencies remain professional, non-political, non-partisan, because no matter who's in power as president, they have to trust that their agencies are doing the best they can to get to the ground truth. Yeah, the, the point you make about the importance of the broader American populace being educated on these issues is part of why I, I just can't recommend your book enough for everybody. I'll put in one more plug before um, we probably have time for one or two more quick questions, but it, it's 
exactly for that reason that what you've done with this book, these programs, the World Affairs Council are, are just so important to making sure people understand these issues. Um, we've got time for one or two more questions. So um, we've got a question from Stephen Robb who says, I, I know you rank the US in the top three of Intel services worldwide, but could you discuss your confidence in our Intel as it relates specifically to defensive military and cyber capability? Such a good question. I wish I had a good answer. I can't, so this is a very unsatisfying answer. My next book project is actually looking comparatively at the US versus other countries and in our intelligence capabilities in a range of areas. So I'm collaborating with a colleague of mine at Harvard and one at Cambridge in the UK to write a global history of intelligence. So come back in a couple of years when I have a much better answer to that excellent question. I can't wait for that book. That book cannot come out soon enough for me. And it looks like a lot of our members here, they, they've really seemed to enjoy this conversation. Um, we have a, another question about um, spyware, which I think is a, a really interesting one maybe to, to start to close with. Um, Mary asks, it has now been reported that, that Israel is operating Pegasus spyware to spy on its own citizens that it said would only be used on, on terrorists or insurgents. Is there any possibility that other democracies will do this also to build intelligence on its own citizens? And I really appreciate that Mary brought up the democracy word there. Um, so Amy, over to you. Yeah, I really appreciate that question. So this was a New York Times story that just came out uh, in, the, in the Sunday Magazine. If you haven't read it, I really encourage you to, to read it. It's some great reporting about the NSO Group, which is a private sector company operating in close collaboration with the Israeli government. They're behind this Pegasus spyware, very sophisticated spyware in your cell phones. And so it raises all sorts of questions, uh, including what's the role of democracies and how do we prevent this kind of spyware from being used against our own citizens? And you know, I think a couple lessons learned from that news article. One is once something's out there, it's in the wild. You cannot control spyware and who uses it and how. The Israeli government and NSO group thought that's what they were doing with who they sold it to and how it would be used, but that turned out not to be the case. And it will never be the case in cyberspace, right? Once, it's, once the genie is out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. But I think the second part of that article that I found really interesting was that the FBI decided not to buy the spyware. So there was this whole long and deliberative process about under what circumstances should our government purchase a modified product like this from this company and under what conditions, if ever, should it be used? And that's democracy working, right? There was a thorough review. There was a consideration of the costs and the benefits. And ultimately it was decided that the benefits were not worth the risks, right? We have been down this road before. There have been dark days in our country's history where our intelligence agencies did spy on American people, but importantly, it was against the law, right? Not against the law in Russia, not against the law in China, but it is against the law in the United States. And we have more oversight regimes now to protect us from that kind of an abuse, but we have to be vigilant about it because it's pretty easy, I think, to, for especially democracies that are receding, like Hungary, for example, which was reported as one of the countries to engage in um, using spyware to silence political opponents at home. So on that note, I think 
I think that was our final question. Great way to end. Thank you, Amy. Liz, back over to you. Uh, I also cannot wait for this book to come out. So we'll we'll all wait these these few years. Ladies, I knew we were going to have a fabulous conversation. We did just that. Thanks to the two of you. Uh, I loved all the, the questions and all the audience uh, that were engaging with us. Thank you, everyone. Please buy Amy's book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. You can pick it up from our local bookstore, Partner in Terabang Books. You can also go to our YouTube station at DFW World to look at other past programs we've had online. Ladies, thanks again. Everyone, thanks for joining us. Become a member of the World Affairs Council, and we'll see you next time. Good night.